0: Well, happy day after Reformation Day. Yesterday we actually celebrated the 498th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg in protest to the Roman Catholic sale of indulgences and additional church abuses. Now, many of you will recall the indulgences were sold to to knock down the penalty of people's sins. So, Maybe you spend a little less time in purgatory, or maybe you could free someone that is a relative out of purgatory. But um, that was what the, the protest originally started with, and Martin Luther wanted to reform the church. He didn't know that actually he would start something far greater. Now, Pastor Todd had asked me, as he had shared a while ago, to have a message in regards to the Reformation. And where do you start? over something that is so life and world-changing. You know, I thought, well, I could do an historical perspective looking from the apostles to the time of the Reformation. I could do a uh, theological perspective looking at just uh, key concepts, creeds, confessions, councils, uh, catechisms, those sort of things. I could do a biographical, uh, biographical perspective where we focus on Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli. Or we could look at the change and the difference between Roman Catholicism and uh, Protestantism. And then also, uh, obviously, it was a recovery of the gospel. So uh, I'm going to touch upon a little bit of that throughout the message. So today I want you to understand this message is going to be different than most for uh, the format that we typically take here at the Anchor Bible Church. Typically we go through an expository preaching where we go verse by verse. Today it's going to be topical. And so... Um, We're going to look at the Doctrines of Grace, and uh, one reformer in particular. And um, I'm going to share with you that I lean heavily on a couple of books, uh, one by James Montgomery Boyce, The Doctrines of Grace, and also Tulip by Dwayne Spencer. We're going to look at a cornucopia verses. It's November. Hey, Thanksgiving's right around the corner, right? And then uh, cornucopia, it's just a panoply of verses, right? So everyone's down with that plan. So the reason I state that right now is I'm going to ask you to turn a few times. I'm not going to have you turn to all however 50 many verses I have. So just jot them down, and then you can follow up later. But I don't want to put the pressure on you to, like, I can't keep up. There's just too many verses. So with that, uh, I'd like to read the uh, So That statement that you can see on our bulletin. So, today we'll see that the doctrines of grace, a term that came out of the Reformation, faithfully represent God's sovereign plan of redemption so that we will trust and worship him faithfully. So how did we get here at the Anchor Bible Church? I know you all drove today, but I'm talking about theologically. Why are we not worshiping at a Roman Catholic church, or a Methodist, or Episcopalian, or a Calvary Chapel? Well, is it God's providence? Definitely. Yes, it is. And it's God's providence that a group of people are to worship him in spirit and truth. What is truth? thy word is truth. We are a church that is based upon his word and what his words say and what they command and that we want to be doers of his word and not just hearers of it. So how did we come to understand this word? Through God, yes, definitely. God used men and a movement to bring us back away, leading us away from man's traditions, idolatry, um, Pelagianism legalism. And although systematic theologies, creeds, confessions, councils are not inerrant like the scripture, we would be fools not to stand upon the shoulders of giants who went before us, who died to themselves, took up their cross, and as Martin Luther so popularly said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, Since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. The Reformation was a recovery of a biblical doctrine of sin. It was also recovery of a biblical doctrine of man's true condition. And it was a great, It was coming to a greater appreciation of God's grace. And uh, let me let you in on a little secret, okay? If we do anything towards our salvation, it is no longer grace, okay? When we read the word grace in the Bible, we see it, we hear it. I want everyone from this day on to think 100% God has nothing to do with us. The Reformation was a recovery of the doctrines of grace, which we're going to cover today. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Many know that the acronym is TULIP. And also, this movement adhered to the five solas, as Brad had shared earlier, uh, which I'm going to save for another day, but I'll just briefly touch upon them here. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. This is what we adhere to at the Anchor Bible Church, and this is why you worship here and not at another institution that does not adhere to these core biblical tenets that emerged out of the Reformation let's pray father you indeed are sovereign you are the creator of all things and God uh, we know that when it comes to salvation we contribute nothing but our sin God you are graceful and merciful and kind and God we give you all the credit and all the praise we look forward to hearing your word today and how men stood strongly and firmly upon your word against even threats of death because they loved you and your word so much. Help us to gain a greater appreciation today of your word. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ironman and Wow, you know, a lot of times we'll start a topic with wrong thinking or unbiblical thinking, and I'll do the same here. The first wrong or unbiblical thinking is uh, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is contrary to Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church places self above Scripture. And a lot of you know, some have come out of the Roman Catholic Church, that uh, when an infant is baptized that what is happening there is actually grace is being infused, or this is their perspective. They say grace is being infused into that infant. That's why they put such an emphasis on baptism. And what happens then is they are saying that this individual now has inherent righteousness. So the righteousness is in them and that they have the ability to cooperate with God in regards to their salvation, as far as that is concerned. Now, I'm not gonna get into the differences of mortal and venial sin. I'm sure a fair amount of you have already heard that. But what they do say is that if you commit mortal sin and you die, you would, you would go to hell at that point in time. But if you commit a mortal sin and you do penance, then your relationship is back to a friendly relationship with Christ and everything's okay. Venial sin's okay, Christ isn't just, he's not concerned about those sins. So now, then along comes Martin Luther. And he's reading his Bible as he did every day. And he's going back over and he sees Romans 1.17. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther pondered that. And then it it came to him that he realized that it's not an inherent righteousness. Rather, it's an alien or foreign righteousness. It simply means it's a righteousness outside of us. It's Christ's righteousness. And we see that in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and 1 Peter 3.18. You know, Christ died for us. His righteousness was imputed to us. Our sinfulness was imputed to him. So that in order to save us and bring us to God, there's nothing inherently good in and of us. So the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic uh, Council of Trent, back in 1547, in session 6, canon number 9, in a direct response to Martin Luther said, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. The Roman Catholics still adhere to this today. Second unbiblical view, Arminianism. Jacob Herman, born 1516, and died 1609. Most of you know him by the Latin translation of his last name, Arminius. Uh, had some serious doubts about sovereign grace. And so after his passing, some of his followers, uh, Arminians, not to be confused with minions, um, <laughs> compiled five points of Arminianism. And they submitted these five points to the state of Holland in the year 1618. And a national synod of the church was convened. You will be familiar with the Synod of Dort. And they examined the teachings, teachings of Arminius in light of scripture. And this was not taken lightly. These people met 154 different times over seven months, and what they discovered was that the five points of Arminianism were found to be contrary to Scripture and declared heretical. Now, at the same time, theologians of the Church uh, reaffirmed the position held by the Protestant reformers as consistent with Scripture and formulated the canons of Dort which we have come to know today basically as the five points of Calvinism, or TULIP. Now, so let's backtrack. What are the five points of Arminianism? Well, first, they say man has free will. He has the ability to choose or reject Christ. Number two, conditional election. Election is based upon foreknowledge. You've all heard that God looks down the corridor of the time and he sees uh, Betty Sue did something good and so well, I'm going to save Betty Sue and Betty Sue's going to cooperate. Uh, obviously not scriptural. Universal atonement. God loves everybody and Christ died for everyone. Christ provides ground, grounds for God to save all men. However, each must exercise his own free will to accept Christ. There, the fourth point of Arminianism is obstructible grace. God sent his Holy Spirit to woo all men to Christ. However, since man has free will, he has the ability to resist or reject. Five, falling from grace. If man cannot be saved by God unless it is man's will to be saved, then man cannot continue in salvation unless he continues to will to be saved. The five points of Calvinism and the five points of Arminianism are diametrically opposed to one another. The right biblical thinking is five points of Calvinism. And I want you to think of it as a tulip growing out of the fertile earth. Is tulip, the doctrines of tulip, the five points of Calvinism coming out of scripture. The first point is total depravity. I begin with a quote from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says, there are very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of the disease will always bring with them wrong views of the remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure of that corruption. Now, total depravity does not mean absolute depravity. And absolute depravity, we would say, is man is incapable of doing any good. No, we all know some pretty horrible people that occasionally do something good. And we all know some pretty nice people that occasionally do something bad. Uh, the reformers said that total depravity meant that man was as bad off as he could be. Basically, he was beyond all self-help. Total depravity means that man in his natural state is incapable of doing anything to please God. So what does scripture say about total depravity? First, let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And let's see our condition before we came into a saving faith in Christ Jesus. So again, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says in verse 1, And you were dead Well, there's four things we notice about the sinner. First of all, the sinner is dead. And, uh, you know, what can a dead man do, right? We've talked about that before. Second, we see the sinner is actively practicing evil. That's the desire. That's the natural inclination of his heart, of a heart that's still stone and not flesh yet. Three, the sinner is enslaved. We're slaves to sin, In America, we don't like to think of slavery, but there's really only two masters. It's the slaves to sin or a slave to righteousness of Christ. Four, sinner by nature is an object of God's wrath. So you look at it, and the person that, before he comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, he's in a horrible position. He's an object of God's wrath. Total depravity is grounded in the fact that the human spirit is dead from birth. So turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Again, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. <clears throat> As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. <clears throat> First, we see here the uh, moral nature, and it says clearly in Scripture that some are righteous. One per- no, none are righteous, right? Look at the Scriptures. Man is a depraved sinner. Now, I want you to look at the world, and if some people think, "Oh, we're not so bad. We just need a little more education." No, we're bad. There's wars, there's uh, human trafficking, robberies, murders, drugs. Corporate crime, greed, cruelty, uh, and I'll share with you, and this has probably been your experience, you, you're just walking around and you hear, occasionally hear some people talking. I'm amazed at how many times I hear people and they're slandering someone. They're gossiping about someone. They're angry about someone. Indeed, none are righteous. Second, sinful mind. It says none understands. So, Hopefully you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with an unbeliever before. And sometimes you get that look like, dude, you're off your rocker, right? And that's what's happening with the sinful man. He, he can't see, he can't perceive. This, this makes no sense to him. And number three, captive will. It says none seeks God. And I will say none seeks God. I'll qualify by saying none seeks the God of the Bible, They have their own God, right? How many times will you talk with someone and say, well, that's not my God. My God would never send anyone to hell for eternity. Well, they've made made for themselves an idol. Now, we think we're pretty good. We think we're pretty hot stuff. You ask anybody out in the street today, hey, are you a good person? What's the response going to be? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. Well, that's not what the scripture says. And we see that in Jeremiah 17, 9. Again, you don't have to turn there. But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it now this is how god views man in john chapter 3 verse 19 it says and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil man in his own free will can never come to christ we see it in John 5:40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The unregenerate person is incapable of discerning the truth. He thinks the things of God are patently absurd. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 2:14. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 2:14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A dead spirit cannot see the things of God. And we see that in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And as we read this, I want you to notice the order of events. So starting with uh, verse 4 in chapter 2 of of Ephesians. But God, I'll say real quick, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's the Bible right there. Those two words, but God. He does it all. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead and he made us alive. Man is not saved by some mythical free will uh, uh, act of his own. He is saved by grace and God's grace alone. Salvation is the gift of God. It's not based on any man's works. Don't take this lightly or for granted. Praise God for his grace and his mercy. Now listen, if you get this doctrine wrong, everything else will be skewed. It's like the foundation, if you will. If it's made out of sand instead of a good solid concrete foundation, everything else is going to be a little uh, slightly waxed. So I want to share a story first with you. Um, Christy and I went on a stargazer's hike in Yosemite and um, we were walking along and you have your flashlights and you go out to this valley that's pretty far away from any lights and uh, so then we get to a certain point and then our guide says alright everyone cut your flashlights, It takes about a second for your eyes to kind of adjust but then you look up and you see the stars and they're so vibrant against the backdrop of the dark sky. And it's like that with the gospel, against the backdrop of sinful and depraved man in his unregenerate state. So the, the scripture clearly teaches total depravity. Our second point is unconditional election. Now election's a very important measuring rod for someone's theological bent. Whether one accepts or rejects this doctrine quickly reveals whether a person is biblically correct about the nature and extent of sin, the bondage of the will, and the full grace of God in salvation. Lorraine Bettner, a theologian, says, it follows from what has been said that salvation is absolutely and solely of grace, that God is free in consistency with the infinite perfections of his nature to save none few many or all according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will it also follows that salvation is not based on any merits in the creature and that it depends on god and not men who are and who are not to be made partakers of eternal life god acts as a sovereign in saving some and passing by others who are left to the just recompense of their sins. All the great confessions of the Reformation held to election as being unconditional. God delights in using the weak and useless in a way that he alone receives all the glory. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, You can also jot this passage down, 2 Timothy 1.9. Again, 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Because of his own purpose, he saved us. And... God chooses us. We did not choose him. We see that in John fifteen sixteen. You did not choo- choose me, but I chose you. And he chose us before the foundation of the world. I don't know about many of you, but I, I certainly wasn't there before the foundation of the world. But it says clearly, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And those who were appointed to eternal life, they believed. And we see that in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, Acts 13:48. and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is all by the will of Jesus. John 5, 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. It's not your work, it's God's work, and he's the one who causes you to believe. John six twenty nine, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now many of you know the story in Luke chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, and you see there Elijah and Elisha. You have to kind of separate the two. Uh, Elijah, he came about and, and the Lord told him to go to the widow at Zarephath. But there were many widows, even in Israel. But notice how he was sent to none, but only the widow in Zarephath. And Elisha, there were many lepers in his time in Israel. He could have saved or cured quite a few there. But there was only Naaman, who was a Syrian, who was actually an enemy of the Jews. And there's, again, there's nothing inherently good in the widow that was from Zarephath or Naaman. God's just showing completely how it's out of his free grace upon a couple of heathens. John chapter 6, 65 and 66 says, and he said, this is Jesus. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father after this watch this after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him followers here are, are bailing out because jesus is talking about election this is an ego deflating doctrine man in his unregenerate state hates this doctrine when you talk to anybody about it and you get a little gruff, uh, you know you get a little riffraff that's they they hate this doctrine i, I was thinking of uh, when it comes to having a discussion with anybody about the doctrine of election, I was thinking about that scene in Toy Story where Mr. Potato Head says, prepare to meet Mr. Angry Eyes. So that's what happens when we end up talking with someone about election. It's a doctrine that gets people all riled up. Now I've shared this before, I'm gonna do it again. So think about it. Did you choose your parents Did you choose when you were to be born, where you were to be born, your ethnicity, your gender? And for those who have kids, did you just kind of put in order to God and say, hey, I'd like this sort of kid? No, you didn't choose your kids. You know, these are some of the most important aspects of our lives. And we had absolutely no say in them. And God did it all. And it's the exact same way with election. Now, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 18. Again, that's uh, Romans chapter 9, 6 through 18. And we'll be looking at the fact of election. So it says there, starting verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel and he hardens whomever he wills." Now going back to the beginning part of that verse, we see uh, election is obvious in the case of Abraham. And even it would be pretty obvious because we knew that Isaac was the child of the promise, where Ishmael was not. But where it gets a little touchy is with Jacob. Notice how Jacob and Esau have the exact same Jewish parents. Jacob's not even technically the firstborn, Although I have twins too, and they kind of squabble, Hannah says, "Well, I'm a minute older, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about." She came out first, so. Uh, <laughs> but they're they're basically born at the same time. But um, but the choice of Jacob was before either of them had done anything good or evil. Again, stating the case that election cannot be have anything to do with us; it's all based upon God. Now, in, in verse 14, it says, is God unjust? And I bet if you go out there today and you ask the question after reading this, a lot of people will say, yes, he is. No, the scripture says, by no means. This answer does not satisfy most today. Why is that? Well, it's because it puts us in our proper place as fallen human beings. Now, how should we understand God's justice? Well, uh, if you're a part of Eucaipa South, you know, we've talked about this before, is that you know, we don't want God's justice, right? If, if we got God's justice, we would all be in hell. So all human beings deserve to go to hell, not heaven. What we want is God's grace and his mercy, which he freely bestows upon us through faith in Christ. If anyone is to be saved, it is by mercy and grace alone. Uh, Jot down these verses, I'm just going to highlight real quick. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, it says, He chose you. Romans 11, 5 through 7 says, Chosen by grace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, He destined us. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 says, God chose you. Basically, election is very clear throughout all Scripture. Point number three, limited atonement. Now, for some people, this might be the most difficult of the five points of Calvinism. You've probably heard some people say that they are four-fifths Calvinists, right? Well, this is the one point that they disagree with. But let me uh, ask you to put on your thinking caps for a minute, and I'm going to ask you all a question. Did Jesus' death... Merely make salvation possible for everyone because he died for all without actually saving anyone? Or did his death actually accomplish the salvation of those from whom he died? Well, the Bible teaches the latter position. Now, a couple other terms for limited atonement, which a lot of people prefer, as I do as well. A definite atonement or a particular redemption. Redemption. Now, I think these are both better expressions, but if you think in the acronym, if you stick a D or a P, you get two dip or TUPIP, so it's not quite the same. So we'll stick with limited atonement. Now, God would not send his son to die for those whom he had not chosen before the foundation of the world. I have a quote from uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and... Um, I wanted to share that with you because he's so witty and he's so logical, but this is his response or his uh, talking about limited atonement. He says, uh, Spurgeon says here, we often, we are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? And they answer, no. They're obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no. Christ has died, that any man may be saved if. And then the follow, following certain conditions, then they follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who, now who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do that. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Love, Spurgeon. So there's only three possible answers in regards to this first of all in regards to Jesus's atonement first Jesus's death was not an actual atonement but only something that makes atonement possible it's conditioned based upon someone exercising faith or a sinner repenting two the second option is Jesus's death was an actual atonement for the sins of God's elect with result that only these are delivered from sin's penalty. And the third option is Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sin of all people with the result that all people are saved. Well, we can quickly dismiss the third option because there's no orthodox Christian that would believe that. Even in scripture, we clearly see that Pharaoh's lost in Romans nine and Judas in uh, Matthew 26. But I wanna clarify a few terms before we continue. We've heard these terms before, but redemption it means to buy back. And we see in first Peter 1 18 through 19, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Galatians 3 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And in Revelation 5 9, with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What kind of redemption would it be if he only made it possible? You wouldn't buy non specific items at the store. <laughs> you purchase specific things. And he redeems specific people, his people. Propitiation is the uh, second term, and it's to turn aside wrath. Now, what kind of propitiation would it be if the parties are still at odds with one another? And if you think about it, the Armenian is proposing double jeopardy to a certain extent because they're saying Christ died for all, but yet if someone does not choose to accept Christ, he still goes to hell, paying that penalty twice. We call that double jeopardy. Three, reconciliation means to establish peace. Reconciliation is what the Bible says that Christ accomplished. What kind of reconciliation would it be if the parties are still fighting? Four, atonement. It's to make it one, those who were formerly at odds. Jesus did not come to merely make salvation possible, but to actually save those who are his. Christ's work on the cross is not a hypothetical salvation for a hypothetical people, but it is a real, definite Salvation for God's own chosen people. Now, there are a couple passages that uh, Arminians like to cling to and claim as their own, and I'll touch base on those right now. The first one is John 3, 16. We still love these passages, don't get me wrong, but they, they misinterpret them. And you know the passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not, have, should not, but have, uh, not perish but have eternal life. So, in this case, what does the word world mean? Well, there's multiple ways that you can understand the word world. First, all that God has created. Second, we can understand the word world as the earth. Or three, mankind as a whole. Or four, the Palestinian contemporaries of our Lord. Or the Jew in particular. Or all evil forces related to earth and rebellion against God. Or seven persons selected out of every tribe and nation upon the face of the earth. Now, wherever we see the word "world" or any word for that matter, we also, we have to read it out of con- We have to read it in context. Context is king. So we see in John twelve nineteen. Uh, so the Pharisees said to one another, "You see that you are getting you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him." Well, it's obvious from the context that not the whole world has gone after him because the speakers, the Pharisees, they refused to do so. The word world, in this case, only includes those who were drawn to our Lord. I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan, so when they won the World Series, and I'm rooting for the Royals right now, but when they won the World Series, they said all of St. Louis came down for the parade. Really? Really? So the freeways were cleared, nobody was at home, nobody was at work, uh, nobody was on vacation, nobody was doing anything else, nobody was in the hospital. No, we know what they meant, right? And it's the same thing here with John 3.16. So for whom did Christ die? Who is it that will not perish but have everlasting life? And the answer is whoever believes in him. Well, who is it that will believe in him? And that's where you get the fork in the road with the Arminian and the Calvinist. The Arminian says, whoever of his own free will will choose to trust in Christ. And the Calvinist says, those whom for the Father chose in Christ. But note something interesting here. Both are hereby agreed that the word world, in terms for those whom Christ died, i.e. believers, means men out of every tribe and nation, but not all tribes and nation as a whole. And you ask why? Well, since not all trust in Christ, even the Armenian agrees to that. Now another verse, Second Peter three, uh, verse nine, and it says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." So we go back and we study the text, and we say, "To whom is this addressed?" Well, we find the answer in Second Peter one one, which, to be brief, I'll say is. Believers, the elect. And what is the context of this passage? Well, we see that in verse 4. So where's, where's the promise of his coming? And we see Peter's answer in verse 9. It says, The Lord is patient towards you. Now, who is the you? Who is he talking about here? We get the answer again from 2 Peter 1 1. It's to those who obtained a faith of equal standing, believers. Now, why is the Lord patient? Well, he doesn't want any of you to perish, but that all of you should come to repentance. All the elect come to repentance. Now, moving on. Only the elect bride of Christ was the object of his love. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Galatians 1, 3 through 5 says, grace to you and peace from God our father. And he's speaking to believers. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We also see in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. John 10, 15 says, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And verse 27 says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Isaiah 53, 8 says, for the transgression of my people. And Matthew 1, save his people from their sins. Matthew 20, 28 He gave his life as a ransom for many. And Luke 1, 68, he redeemed his people. So why does the Calvinist believe in limited atonement? Because Christ and the apostles believed in it and taught it. Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. Limited atonement is throughout the Bible. Point number four, irresistible grace. We get uh, the word grace from uh, the Greek word charis, which means unmerited favor. This is God's free will, free choice. The uh, Arminian says grace is obstructible. The free will of man is capable of rejecting the sovereign will of God. The Calvinist says God's grace cannot be resisted. Grace is something that God does for man, which man does not deserve. A good way to say this is when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, giving us a new nature, we naturally do what that new nature does, which is we believe in the gospel, we repent of our sins, and we trust in Christ for salvation. The Arminian insists that the the omnipotent God can be obstructed. This is contrary to scripture. Nowhere in scripture does it say that a man chooses eternal life on his own free will. Again, I'm going to say that. Nowhere in scripture does it say that a man chooses eternal life of his own free will. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, we see, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 16. Excuse me. Acts 16:14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, there's two types of calls. There's a general call, which is external and it's universal. Um, It's an invitation for all men to repent and believe. We see that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. However, if left to themselves, no one would respond to that call. Now, there's a second call, a specific call which is internal and effectual. And it not only provides an invitation, but willingness and an ability to respond. It's like the raising of Lazarus that we see in John chapter 11. Now Romans 1, 6, and 7 says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Romans eleven twenty nine for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Second Timothy one, eight and nine. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. All of these are examples of an effective call, a call that unites us to Christ. Now, what's the reason that the call is effective? It's God. And we see that in Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And God is the cause of the new birth. We see that in John 1.13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. All of this is from God. God's irresistible grace is throughout scripture. Point number five, perseverance of the saints. Well, Arminians believe If you can accept or reject Christ, you can also fall away from your salvation if you so desire. Calvinists believe that an elect can never be lost since their salvation is completely by the will of God. Since scripture teaches unconditional election, man cannot do anything to be unsaved. Thus, we have two diametrically opposed positions. One is an opinion based on reasoning of the carnal mind, which is always at enmity with God, and the second is fact based upon scripture. So what does the scripture say about perseverance of the saints? Well, Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 6.39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all, or some text will say none, that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What does the Bible say? Does it say he'll lose some, or does it say he'll lose none? John 10.28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Whose word do we take, man's or God's? 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In Jude 24, it says, He's keeping us. He's keeping us from stumbling. 2 Timothy 4, 18 says, Bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. Now, there's a few things perseverance does not mean. One, perseverance does not mean that the Christians are exempt from all spiritual danger. Number two, perseverance does not mean that Christians are always kept from falling into sin just because they are Christians. Sadly, Christians do sin. We see that with Noah in the case of drunkenness. We see that with Abraham who lied about Sarah. We see that David committed adultery and committed murder. And we see that Peter denied our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this next point is very important. I want everyone to listen to this. Um, We have the tremendous blessing at the under shepherds meeting to pray for everyone. And we pray for each one individually. And one theme that I'll say, and I, I had the opportunity to pray with other under shepherds, a common theme is we're praying for salvation for some of you. And so perseverance, listen to this, perseverance does not mean that those who profess Christ without actually being born again, are secure. Okay, so many claim to be Christians, but are not. Scripture clearly tells us we need to make our calling and election sure. Now, if you think you're one of those people that we might be praying for as far as salvation, listen carefully. I want to share the gospel with you. So we see in Romans 3, 23 through 26, and I'm going to go ahead and read that passage. If you want to join me, that's fine as well. It's Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He's not going to sweep it under the door. He's not going to be a bad judge and just forgive everything willy-nilly. He's being just, and he's the justifier. He's the one who saves us, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we've already talked about man's total depravity, and we've talked about God's sovereign choice in election. Christ dying for those who are his in limited or definite atonement. Now we get to God's irresistible grace. Is God calling you with a specific and saving call through his word? Trust in Christ and repent of your sins. Do you concur with scripture that you are a sinner? You need a savior and there is only one. John 14, 6 tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And there is salvation, excuse me, Acts four twelve. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins and has credited his righteousness to us. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ was sinless, right? He's the God-man. He lived the perfect life. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Again, this is that alien or foreign righteousness that Martin Luther talked about. It's Christ's righteousness. It's, exter- it's outside of us. It's his righteousness. And similarly, in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to us, Bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. <coughs> I want everyone to picture a nail, a nine-inch nail, which is probably more of a stake. Christ took three of those to save those who are his. Because he just thought it was a fun thing to do? No. No. No because we couldn't, and we cannot save ourselves. It's based 100% upon his work. So he suffered, and he died, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him for all of our sins, all of those who are his, all of our sins, past, present, and future. And he paid the debt in full. And of course he was buried, and on the third day he rose in fulfilling scripture. And he put to death Death and sin. Those who are in Christ live by faith in him, not based upon our works. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Ephesians 2.8-10 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Repent now. Trust in Christ now. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to anybody. 2 Corinthians 6.2 tells us, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, getting back into the perseverance of the saints, there's three categories of challenging passages for perseverance of the saints. First, there's passages that suggest we could fall away. And we see in Matthew 25, you'll be familiar with these parables. There's the parable of the ten virgins, the talents, and also the sheep and the goats. And in all those cases, none of these speak or teach that salvation can be lost. It just simply says that they were never believers from the beginning. A second category is passages suggesting our salvation is uncertain. And uh, one verse I'll share with you is Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. (coughs) The writer here is warning his reader against denying the Lord. And we see that if we just go a few more verses down, verse 9 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure or confident of better things, things that belong to salvation. And a third set of warning is the uh, warning passages. And I'll read a couple of those to you. Hebrews 2, 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so, such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard. And then also 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. These passages provoke us to higher levels of commitment and greater godliness. Uh, martin lloyd jones says in reference to these passages he says to be concerned and troubled about the state of our soul when we read passages such as these and of itself evidence that we are sensitive to god's word and to his spirit and that we have spiritual life in us in other words if these passages make you nervous uh, that's a good thing Uh, you know for people that are not in christ they don't care it doesn't bother them Now, for the elect, heaven is our home. The glory of that heavenly dwelling is our inheritance, and perseverance is clearly taught in the Bible. Now I'd like to turn our attention to one of the most preeminent reformers. He came from a long line of godly men, starting with Peter and Paul and Augustine and Luther. He was primarily a pastor. Philip Melanchthon successor to martin luther called him the theologian he gave himself to the exposition of the word as perhaps no one else in history he was primarily concerned about the glory of god and magnifying christ jesus and diving deeply into the infinite wealth of his holy word he remains the greatest biblical commentator of all time his name's john calvin he was born July 10, 1509, in the farm country of Noyon, France, about 67 miles northeast of Paris. Calvin's father, Gerard, raised him to be a Roman Catholic priest, and he had a grounding in Latin and logic and philosophy. Now, Gerard Calvin had a conflict with the bishop of Noyon. So he redirected John's career to study law. He was like, I'm I'm done with you being a priest. Now go study some law. So he went to the University of Orleans and later to the University of Borges. Calvin, as we see, submitted. He submitted to his father. He lived a life of submission. Gerard Calvin died in 1531, and so this freed Calvin to pursue his first love, which was classic literature. While he was at Borges, he came in contact with the biblical truths of the Reformation, Upon his conversion, he immediately changed his allegiance from the Roman Catholic Church to the the growing Protestant Reformation. (laughs) And this is from Sketches of Church History by S.M. Houghton. He says, Calvin obeyed his intellect rather than his passions, but his heart became filled with love for God and the people of God. Of all the reformers, none has conferred greater benefits on the Church of God than John Calvin, For none of them dug so deeply into the scriptures by prayerfully study prayerful study or brought so much fine gold of truth from the mind of god's word as he calvin went to uh, basel switzerland in the years of 1534 and 1536 and that's where he began to write the institutes of the christian religion which many even today still consider to be the defining masterpiece of protestant theology John Calvin desired to head to Strasbourg, but however, that was not God's plan for him. He was detoured into Geneva and uh, was planning on only spending one night there until the uh, great reformer of Geneva, William Farrell, got wind of the fact that Calvin was in town. So Farrell told Calvin, if you do not assist us in this work of the Lord, the Lord will punish you. So Calvin again was submissive. Calvin agreed to stay and acknowledge that this was God's will for his life. I want to read a short excerpt of what happened uh, to Geneva during the time of Calvin. It says, here's a particularly striking example. In 1535, the Council of 200, which governed the city of Geneva, Switzerland, decided to break with Catholicism and align the city with the Protestant Reformation. They had very little idea what that meant. Up to this point, the city had been notorious for its riots, gambling, indecent dancing, drunkenness, adultery, and other vices. The citizens of Geneva would literally run around the streets naked, singing indecent songs and blaspheming God. They expected this state of affairs to continue even after they had become Protestants, and the council did not know what to do. It had passed regulation after regulation designed to restrain vice and to remedy the situation. They thought becoming Protestant would solve the problem, but that did not do any good either. Geneva's morals continued to decline. But the council did one thing right. They invited John Calvin to become Geneva's chief pastor and preacher. Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. From the very first, his emphasis had been on Bible teaching, and he returned to it now, picking up precisely where he had left off three and a half years earlier. Calvin preached from the Bible every day and under the power of that preaching the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquitted knowledge, excuse me, acquired knowledge of God's Word and were changed by it. The city became, as John Knox called it later, a New Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the New World. There probably has never been a clear example of extensive moral and social reform the transformation of Geneva under the ministry of John Calvin and it was accomplished almost entirely by the preaching of God's Word. (laughs) By the middle of the 16th century Calvin was the dominant figure of the Protestant Reformation. After Luther's death those who had become convinced of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church looked to Calvin for guidance and instruction. While preaching Calvin met with much difficulty. Frail in stature, Calvin suffered many ailments. He also endured physical threats to his life, yet Calvin never ceased. The Libertines, that, uh, it was a group that boasted in sinful licentiousness, caused him much trouble. Philibert Berthelier, sorry if I chopped his name, a Libertine was excommunicated because of his known sexual promiscuity. He was forbidden from partaking the Lord's table. Through influence of the Libertines, the city council overrode the church's decision. So Barthelier and his associates came to take the Lord's Supper with swords drawn, ready to fight. With bold audacity, Calvin descended from the pulpit, stood in front of the communion table and said these words. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. Berthelier and the Libertines withdrew, no match for such unflinching convictions. The theocentricity of his faith, of Calvin's faith, appears in his last will and testament, which was dictated on April 25, 1564. Calvin says, In the name of God, I, John Calvin, servant of the word of God in the Church of Geneva, thank God, that he has shown not only mercy toward me, his poor creature, and has suffered me in all sins and weaknesses, but what is much more, that he has made me a partaker of his grace to serve him through my work. I confess to live and die in this faith which he has given me, inasmuch as I have no other hope or refuge than his predestination upon which my entire salvation is grounded. I embrace the grace which he has offered me in our Lord Jesus Christ and accept the merits of his suffering and dying and through them all my sins are buried. And I humbly beg him to wash me and cleanse me with the blood of our great Redeemer, so that I, when I shall appear before his face, may bear his likeness. Moreover, I declare that I endeavored to teach his word undefiled and to expound Holy Scripture faithfully, according to the measure of grace which he has given me. Calvin died at the age of 54 on May 27, 1564. Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor, said, In Calvin all men may see a most beautiful example of Christian character, an example which is as easy to slander as it is difficult to imitate. Calvin's last words were, How long, O Lord? Even those were scripture. Calvin requested burial in an unmarked grave, hoping to prevent pilgrims from coming to see his resting place and engaging in the kind of idolatry he had spent his lifetime standing against. In death, he completed his life's labors, not seeking to make much of Calvin, but striving with all his might to point beyond himself to the one who saved him, the one infinitely worthy of being made much of. It has been well said that to omit Calvin from the history of Western civilization is to read history with one eye shut. If you want to learn more about Calvin, there are many great books. I would recommend Steve Lawson's book uh, on John Calvin, which I utilize for this message. So in closing, we adhere to the doctrines of grace at the Anchor Bible Church. The Bible, which is so well articulated by Tulip. If you are a biblical Christian, this is what you believe and what you cling to. We desire to have a lower view of self and a higher view of God. Only through this view, the biblical view, will we truly understand the heinousness of sin in light of our sovereign and holy God's remarkable grace. Apply these truths in your mind as you preach the gospel to yourself daily. This instills greater appreciation for God and his work as each day passes. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed sovereign, and we thank you the Reformation. As Pastor Todd said, the church is constantly reformed. We desire to see nothing else but you. We desire to be obedient to your word, to not just be hearers, but to be doers. Lord, we know that you are the lover of our soul and the lifter of our heads. God, And you have given us the most indescribable gift, faith in giving us Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to know and to grow in the love and grace of our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.